And who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, those who seek the very face of our God. Father, would you, in your kindness and grace, come and draw us near this morning. We confess that we live too often as if you were far off, as if you are indifferent, as if you are busy with other things. This morning, Father, I pray that you'll help us see that you're a God who is always near. And I pray, Father, that you will cause this nearness to help us see that we must we must give an account to you for who we are that we are indeed responsible for our sin Father I pray that you will help us as we look at this passage this morning see that your nearness is a frightening thing and yet it's the only thing It's the most important thing in our lives. And so grant us, I pray, grace that we may, that we may with our hearts gripped by your word, plead that you would please have mercy on us. And that we will seek your face as you've called us to. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, we've been working through the book of Exodus, and we've been uh, we started last week on the ten com- or the ten plagues, the ten plagues, and uh, the ten plagues um, are what God is using to incite the Egyptians that Pharaoh and the Egyptian people will cast out God's people. Um, the Hebrews called it deliverance. But the Egyptians, as we'll find at the end of these plagues, wanted to have nothing to do with God's people. And they ran them out of their land. Indeed, what took place is that the Lord, by his mighty and sovereign hand, delivered God's people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, as the beginning of the Ten Commandments begin. And this is how God's people were defined. This is how God's people were understood They were understood as people who were delivered by their God. This morning we're going to be looking at the second and the third plague. The second and the third plague, which are the plagues of the frogs and the gnats. What on earth does God have to say to us through frogs and gnats? This morning we're going to look and notice this in our text as we consider it together. There's a lot of similarities of the plagues. Specifically, in, in, in the specifics of the details of the plagues, if you read through them, you find there's several similarities in the specifics. But there's also similarities in the general pattern of the plagues, how they flow and what takes place. 
We looked at a little bit of that, of that last week as we noticed the first three go together, the second three go together, the, the third three go together, and then the tenth and final plague is the climax. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the second and third to kind of pull together these three plagues. The one from last week, which was the Nile turning to blood, and then this week as we consider the second and the third plague. The primary aim of these plagues is that the Lord may identify himself and reveal himself not only to the Hebrews, which are God's people, but also to the Egyptians. So that Pharaoh and the Egyptians will know that this God, the God of the Hebrews, is the one true God of heaven and earth. And this morning what I want you to see is that the specific characteristic that the God of heaven is wanting to display to the Egyptians, particularly, and to God's people as we read through this, is that God is a God who is present. That this God of the Hebrews, this God that we serve, is a God who is not far off and out there, away from us in a general way, but instead He's a God who's very present and a God who is near And what we're going to find is that this nearness was not good news for the Egyptians as they saw God coming near them, this God of the Hebrews. And so this morning I want us to notice um, our text, and we're going to look at these two plagues in three points. Two plagues in three points. The first point is this, rejection of God's presence. The rejection of God's presence, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 8. The rejection of God's presence. Point number two, the supplication for God's presence. A supplication for God's presence. Verses 8 through 12, rejection of God's presence, 1 through 7. Supplication of God's presence, verses 8 through 15. And then finally, 8 through 15. And then finally, point number three, an affirmation to God's presence. An affirmation to God's presence, verses 16 through 19. A rejection, verses 1 through 7. A supplication, verses 8 through 15, and an affirmation, verses 16 through 19. As we look at chapter 8 together, let us look at this plague, this plague of the frogs. And I want us to notice the nearness that's taking place. This is in context of the previous plague. Notice, if you will, with me, just a few verses prior, at the end of chapter 7, it says in verse 22, this, this bloody mess that Pharaoh has... He, um, it says in the verse 22, but the Egyptians, uh, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Notice verse 23 with me. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. We recognize that at the beginning of this plague, in verse 15, it says, Um, uh, The Lord's telling Moses, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take your staff with him. And so what we find here is this movement of Pharaoh from being out by the Nile, by this river, that now the Lord has made a bloody mess. And it says at the end of this plague in verse 23 that Pharaoh presumably seeking to avoid this, the consequences of this bloody water that's in the Nile. It says he goes back into his home and he did not even take this to heart. And so what we find is that the Lord in the second plague then meets Pharaoh 
in his very personal place, which is in his home. In other words, this judgment that God is bringing onto the Egyptians, and specifically in this case on Pharaoh, is not a judgment that's out there that's a way that can be avoided in some way, but instead what we find is that the Lord is showing that his judgment, his nearness, will come very close to all who are his, all of humanity. And so this morning, as we get to chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, we have in our uh, translation here, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, and it's interesting, it's making a transition here, it's, it's, it's showing a continuation. Now that Pharaoh's in his home, seeking to avoid the consequences of this bloody mess of the Nile being made and turned into blood, it says, Then, now that we have Pharaoh in his home, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, the, uh, King James actually has the word, and there, there's an there, there's a intentional effort to make a transition from now that we've got Pharaoh in his home, seeking to ignore the consequences of God's judgment in the Nile, we have now the Lord coming to Moses. Then the Lord comes to Moses, and it says this. Notice in verse 1, it says, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him. Do you see that word? Go in to Pharaoh and say to him. In other words, Moses is no longer doing what he did in chapter 7, verse 15, and meeting him out in the public place of the Nile. But instead, here what we find is that Moses is being called by the Lord to go right into the very place where Pharaoh is residing and to speak this judgment upon him. Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. You see here that the clarity of the tasks that, of what the Lord wants Pharaoh to do is to release God's people. The Lord wants Pharaoh to release the Hebrews. Why? That they may serve the Lord, that they may worship the Lord. And so this, it's interesting how even though this is a short a proclamation, it's clear over and over again in our text that the reason the Lord wanted to deliver his people is so that they can worship him. We need to keep that in mind. Um, we miss that, I believe, about the plagues. We see the plagues as just primarily a judgment upon the Egyptians, and we don't realize that the reason the Lord issued out this amazing judgment is because he's jealous for his worship. And so here, the Lord is saying to Moses, go into the very presence of Pharaoh in this home, in this facility that he is in, in, and say to him, thus says the Lord. In other words, speak to him and explain to him that this is not Moses speaking, but it's the Lord speaking. Let my people go that they may serve me. And the Pharaoh is supposed to be very clear in understanding why the Lord wants to release him. But if you refuse to let them go, this is the Lord continuing to speak, through Moses to Pharaoh, if Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Do you see that phrase? All your country with frogs. Now, now we've got a commentary or an explanation of what does, what does the Lord mean when he's explaining to Pharaoh, and this is Moses explaining this to Pharaoh, he's saying frogs are going to come upon all your country. And Pharaoh's in the safety of his home. Or his palace. What we see here, though, is that this explanation of all your country goes into verse 3. And notice with me, if you will, the closeness and the nearness by which God says he's going to judge Pharaoh. And this is a declaration. It hasn't happened yet. This is Moses, 
being told by the Lord to tell Pharaoh this, and it is this in verse 3. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up, notice this, into your house. This is Pharaoh's house. (laughs) Into this place where you are standing right now. And into your bedroom, even, even more intimate quarters, correct? And on your bed. Now, their beds were not up on stilts like ours or ours are. Beds typically during this time were actually laying on the floor. And so it wasn't that the frogs had amazing jumping ability. They were simply able to come onto the, the beds there that were laying on the floor. So do you see what, what the Lord is, is speaking through Moses and wanting Moses to declare to Pharaoh? Is that there is no escaping this judgment that's going to come next. You might have been out by the Nile and were able to turn your head and avoid the punishment and the judgment of the bloody mess of the Nile. But this judgment, the one of the frogs, is not one, Pharaoh, you're going to be able to avoid. It says it's going to come into your bedroom, into your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people. Your servants were probably those who were the hierarchy, those who were the consultants for the Pharaoh, which were the the administrators for the Pharaoh. But then it speaks of, and your people, speaking of everybody in Egypt. He says these frogs are going to be everywhere. To the degree that they're going to be in your ovens and in your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up. Notice this, verse 4. On you and on your people and on all your servants. Do you see the emphasis? Do you see how how much text we have here that the Lord is wanting Pharaoh to understand this judgment of the frogs will not be avoided by you. You will not be able to get away from it. It will not be one where you're able to just simply exit and escape into your home and avoid it. This judgment is close to Pharaoh. Now, it's amazing to me that God uses things like frogs to accomplish his will. He uses everything because everything's his. And this morning we've got to take a look just for a second and understand why these frogs were so important. It says in verse 4, The frog shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. It says in verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff. Now, verses 1 through 4 was a promise by Moses to Pharaoh that these things were going to happen. Verses 5 through 7 is the actual doing of these things. This is actually being accomplished now in verses 5 through 7. So at this point, the frogs have not come yet. They were just promised to Pharaoh. And then we see in verse 5 it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up. On the land of Egypt. It's interesting. These frogs in the the Egyptian culture were actually honored by the Egyptian culture. And I was thinking about this as well as I was preparing this message. And I was thinking how silly it is that people would honor and revere and give so much clout and credit to frogs. And then I was driving home yesterday after writing this sermon and, and noticed a a truck with gator stuff all over it. And I think, huh, that's just not that much different that we give so much credit and clout to 
animals and things and stuff. But nonetheless, the Egyptians honored and revered and even worshipped frogs. Why? Because they found in the image, we find as we've dug up a bunch of stuff over there in Egypt, there's actually images of frogs on their jewelry, and much of that is also on their pottery. They have these uh, images of, of, of people with heads of frogs. And some of these frogs were honored, and so much so that it was taboo to intentionally kill a frog. In fact, the reason they honored and revered these frogs is because they believed that they um, were, that frogs were the representation of a deity of fertility and childbirth. The croaking of the frogs at night in the pools and in the ravines would often be spoken of in the um, Egyptian literature as being a, a, a sure sign of the Lord's provision to make the land fertile, to make their people multiply, and their society to flourish. So these croaking of the frogs were something that they considered to be very important. The frog deity was called Hepek, and they honored this one. And so now we, maybe we can see how incredibly frustrating it was for this very image of prosperity, promise, and blessing, childbirth, and prosperity to be so overbearing and numerous in their homes and on their beds and in their ovens that they were no longer a source and and an image of blessing. But throughout our plague here, and specifically verses 1 through 7, we see that they became a source of burden, a source of something that was gross, something that they wanted to get rid of, something that they wanted to move away from. The very thing that they saw as something that was good and prosperous and and something they they idolized and revered now became a nuisance, became an image of of something that they wanted to try to remove and handle and manage. Our Lord has a way of showing us just how inadequate and even foolish and contradictory our idols in our lives are. The Lord has a way uh, to take the things that we so desperately want to live our lives for and show them to be what they are, that they can't provide for us, but instead they become a source of suffering and struggle in our lives. They become a burden and not a support for us. We can see that God, in His grace, shows us these things. And in His judgment, we see that these things are very personal. They're very close. They're very near. You see, Pharaoh could not get away from the fact that the very image in his society and his culture for fertility and prosperity and success now was in his bedroom and in his bed and in his place and in his ovens, and he wanted to do everything he could to try to get rid of those because they were a nuisance, not a help or a support. And so we see this rejecting of God's presence. And the reason we see him rejecting God's presence is because it says in verse 2, but if the Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go, then he's going to do this thing of sending the frogs. And then in verses 5 through 7, it says that he sends these frogs. Isn't it interesting that it says in verse 7, the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now, what did Pharaoh want? Did he want more frogs? Look at verse 8. The Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs. Don't you think that might have been what he told his magicians to do, not to create more frogs? 
But to but hey, can, is there any way by your by your secret arts that you can get rid of these frogs? No, the only thing they could do is mimic what God was already doing. And so what we find is this supplication for God's presence. Isn't it interesting that Pharaoh goes to Moses and Aaron, acknowledging the power and the authority of God, and it says in verses 8 through 15, we have this supplication for God's presence. In verse 8 it says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. In other words, he's asking that the judgment be removed, that the frogs be taken away. And then Pharaoh is, is, is saying, and I will give you what you want. In other words, he's wanting to negotiate with this God of the Hebrews. It says in verse 8, and I will, this is Pharaoh speaking, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh's seeking to negotiate with the Lord. He's asking Moses and Aaron to plead with the Lord on his behalf, to intercede for him. It's interesting, isn't it, that it says in our passage that Moses then does an interesting thing. I, find, I found it odd as I was studying this. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command. This is verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to, when, I, excuse me, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be, let, and be left only in the Nile. In other words, Moses is saying, tell me when you want this to happen. When do you want this judgment to be released? And let me know when I'm supposed to go to my Lord and plead to him. Pharaoh says, let it happen tomorrow. Let it happen tomorrow. Not today, and not in a few weeks, as if they were going to die out and just kind of go away. But make it happen tomorrow. Make it at a decisive time. And then Moses responds and says in verse 10, he said, tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say. Now, what is Moses doing? Is he giving Pharaoh an opportunity to kind of flex his muscles, to show that he is powerful and that he's the one in charge? No, Moses tells Pharaoh, be it as you say. In other words, this will happen tomorrow. Why? Verse 10 so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. In other words, Moses is saying, don't make a mistake as to assume that you have any power or authority in this. I want you to understand that this will happen tomorrow, not to display Pharaoh's power, but instead to, to display the uniqueness and the authority of God himself. It says, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There's no frog deity. There's no Nile deity. There's no gnat deity that's going to be like this one who is the Lord our God who's going to overthrow and show his power and authority over all these other gods in each one of these plagues. And so right here at the front of the plagues beginning, in the second plague with the plague of the frogs, Moses is declaring, as we go through these plagues, and as you see the Lord of the God of the Hebrews, our God, displaying his power and authority over each and every one of these different plagues, in each and every one of these different plagues, you're going to see, Pharaoh, that our God's not like all these other gods that you serve. Our God is not like any of those other gods. He is the Lord, our God. And he shows himself to be indeed powerful and strong. The frog shall go away, verse 11. 
from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. And so what we see as this plea and this petition, this supplication was made by by Pharaoh to Moses. And then Moses then in verse 12 comes before the Lord and intercedes for Pharaoh. This is interesting because what we'll find if you've been reading through Exodus some, if you read through it a few times, you'll find that Moses often comes before the Lord on behalf of Pharaoh, but also over and over again on behalf of God's people and cries out to them and intercedes for them. And God shows them mercy, his people. And in this case, he's going to show Pharaoh mercy. Why? Because it wasn't some casual prayer. It wasn't some passive or apathetic prayer. But it says in verse 12 that Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. He cries out to the Lord. He's pleading to the Lord on behalf of Pharaoh and because of this judgment. Now, notice what happens, if you will. It says in verse 13, what happens in way of what the Lord does. Verse 13, it says, And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. What an incredible blessing it is for Pharaoh to have Moses. Isn't it a blessing in your life? People that you know are intercessors. People that you know are men and women of prayer. And when things get really, really difficult, even though you have been coming to the Lord and praying, that you know that you can come to this person that you know is a prayer warrior, one who comes before the Lord often, and that you can ask them to pray for you. And they're not the kind of person that when you ask them to pray for you, you never hear from them again. But a week or so later, they come to you and they say, listen, I've been praying for you. How are things going? What's God doing? What can, can, how can I continue to pray for you? What's changed? Moses here is interceding on behalf of Pharaoh, and it says here that Pharaoh listen, or excuse me, Mo, uh, Lord listens to Moses' word and does as Moses asked the Lord to do. Why would the Lord do this? Because of his grace. There's nothing in Pharaoh or the Egyptians that would make the Lord to relent from his judgment in this way. It's all of God's grace. Listening to, a, to Moses, his chosen servant, this one who's acting in many ways like a priest, interceding for Pharaoh and these people. What a wonderful blessing it is in verse 13 when it says, the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And then what we find is that um, not only does the Lord answer, but then the Egyptians have a task before them because it says that when the Lord answered in verse 13, the frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. In other words, the consequences didn't just go away. What's worse than millions of frogs infesting our property? Millions of dead frogs now infesting our property. I mean, these aren't alive now. They're all dead. And it says that what has to happen in verse 14 is that they have to, they're not just going to go to bed one night and the next day they're going to wake up and they're going to be gone. No, they went to bed one night, they were alive. When they wake up the next morning, they're all dead. And they had to, verse 14, gather them together. Notice the, 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 the indication of the numbers of these frogs. They gathered them together in heaps. And the land stank. Isn't it interesting? The, the, the work that has to be done to take care of and to prop up and to support the, the feeble, weak idolatry 
and gods that we so often allow our lives to pursue. Don't overlook or underemphasize that last phrase in verse 14. The land stank. You and I both know that our memory is probably most closely associated with a smell. Many of us can go different places and do different things, and we can smell something and it recollects in our own minds and our own understanding times and periods of times in our life that we remember. Certain smells that bring back vivid memories of different things in our lives. I know that there's times when I, for example, smell leaves burning and think of North Carolina and think of where I grew up. And I can see with clarity the home that I grew up in and and see with clarity in my mind's eye um, when I go through that screen door on the back porch where I am in the house when that screen door slams shut. And it's amazing how these smells bring back incredible, vivid imagery in my mind. Isn't it interesting that here we have a a marker of the fact that these Egyptians, every time they get a whiff of these frogs that are evidently still there, they went back into the Nile, of these frogs dying, they're going to be reminded by that, of that gruesome day when these piles and piles and heaps and heaps of thousands and thousands of frogs had to be gathered together and the land stank by them. I know if you ask, um, if you ask those who were in Vietnam, for example, and um, I have a father that actually went to Vietnam, and you talk to him about the things that, are, that most bring back memories to him, he will tell you of the smells that he smells. The things that he smelled brings back incredible memories for him of when he was in Vietnam. It's a, it's a horrific thing to remember these things. And yet, in this case, what we find is that God allowed for this stink, this smell, to be in the nostrils of these Egyptians so that they will always be aware of his judgment. Why? Because his judgment was close. It was near. It was unavoidable. So we see that the Lord answered, and the the Egyptians had to gather all these frogs up in piles, and they stank. But notice the response of Pharaoh to all of this. Notice verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Isn't this an amazing verse that both brings together God's sovereignty and man's responsibility all in one verse? This is the first of three times in the book of Exodus where it says not that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but in our passage here in verse 15, it says he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart and would not listen to them, meaning Moses and Aaron. What we see here is that Pharaoh is hardening his heart. Speaking of, speaking of the responsibility that, that Pharaoh has to this sin that he is committing, this not listening, this turning away from God. In other words, this judgment was near. It was unavoidable. It was something he could not not keep from himself, and yet he's culpable, he's responsible for the choice that he made to harden his heart. Over in chapter 9, verse 34, is the third time that Pharaoh is mentioned as hardening his heart. Listen as I read. Exodus 9.34 says, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, that was another plague, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Who's responsible for that? 
It says he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. In other words, Pharaoh was responsible. And it says he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go. And then listen to this last phrase in in, in chapter 9, verse 35. Just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So the Lord did it and Pharaoh's responsible for the sin. That's what we have here as well. Pharaoh's hardening his heart. How? As it says in verse 19, at the, or excuse me, uh, 15 at the end, as the Lord had said. The Lord, Pharaoh is not sovereign and the Lord's trying to make him do something. Pharaoh, the Lord's hands are not tied trying to get Pharaoh to do what he wants him to do. Pharaoh is doing exactly what the Lord had divinely and sovereignly ordered and orchestrated. And yet, what we find here is that Pharaoh's responsible for this hardening of his heart, just like in chapter 9, and we see that also later in chapter 8. So we see the supplication. The supplication for God's presence. Pharaoh was asking for that. The rejection of God's presence, point number 1, verses 1 through 7. Finally, I want us to notice the affirmation to God's presence. Returning now to the third, the third plague. The third plague is quite short. Notice, it's only in verses 16 through 19. Only four verses. Notice as well that in contrast to the previous two plagues, there is no warning given to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not mentioned in this in way of going to him and letting him know what's going to be going on. Instead, what we find is that this, the terseness or the shortness, the brevity of these verses seem to really highlight or emphasize what's trying to be said here in this last, um, this, this third uh, um, uh, plague here of the gnats. It says in verses 16 and 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff. Notice they didn't go to Pharaoh. But he goes straight to, Moses goes straight to Aaron and says, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there was gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of, the earth, of Egypt. Now, this word for gnats, the Bible is notorious for giving us names for animals. And we're not quite sure exactly what they are. I think the King James actually has lice. Is that correct? Correct. They have lice or gnats. Um, basically, the, 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 the Hebrew word for this is vermin. It's, it's little bugs. And so we don't know exactly what kind of little bugs that is. We have all these classifications, these understandings. But when they saw this, they understood bug. And it was a, a lice. It could have been a gnat. It could have been a mosquito. Something to that sort. It was something that was very irritating. Let's call it that. And something that they didn't want to have anything to do with. It was indeed a judgment. When we see pictures or we think of pictures of the Egyptians, even today, as we think about um, pictures and photos of them or even um, uh, movies that were done of the Egyptians, um, did they have uh, uh, heads full of hair or were they bald mostly? Well, they were mostly bald. And if you may have may not have been able to recognize that, but what we find is that the Egyptian culture, they were constantly shaving their head. Why? Because they were trying to avoid these bugs. These bugs that would infest their, their hair. And if you keep a shaved head, then you wouldn't have to worry about that. So it's all of us smart people that are losing our hair that's got it together here. And it says here that they, they, were, that they were infested with these lice and these mosquitoes. The point that's being made here is this, is that the Lord can use the dust of the earth and something as minute and strange as lice or gnats to do his bidding. Corey Ten Boone writes in her book, which I would encourage you to read, called The Hiding Place. 
She was one who was brave to house Jews during the time of the Holocaust. She was captured, and her and her friend Betsy were carted off to a concentration camp. Their job with a handful of other ladies that were in this concentration camp was to basically to um, darter the, the stockings, the socks for the soldiers, the, 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 the German soldiers. And yet they were in very, very difficult living arrangements. She writes in this book called The Hiding Place of how the straw was moldy and wet and stank, and it was horrific. They were packed into this facility with all these other ladies and being made to work each and every day. And Corey Tim Boone talks about the fact that um, what made it even worse was that the place was infested with fleas. It was just overrun with fleas. Betsy, one night, as they are complaining and arguing about the fleas, reminds Corey Tim Boone of the passage they read that morning in their Bible that they were hiding away. In the Bible they read in 1 Thessalonians, the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Betsy tells Corey Tim Boone she needs to be thankful for the fleas. And she says, I will not. <laughs> I cannot be thankful for these things that are driving me insane. Only to find out just a few days later that the reason they've been able to have these Bible studies in this close quarters that they had and the reason they were able to bring their Bible out and read it for the extended period of the time they were able to read it was there was there was some socks that they were supposed to be taken care of and the soldiers would not come and answer a question that they had concerning some socks they were supposed to be taken care of and they were told by the soldiers that they would not dare go into that place because it was infested with fleas you mean to tell me Corey Denboon said the reason we've had the freedom to teach our Bible And to pray together and to have these extended periods of not being beaten but instead being cloistered away in this room is because the soldiers refuse to come in here because the fleas are so bad? And the soldier said, yeah. She said, I began to thank the Lord for the fleas. You see, the Lord uses every circumstance in our life. And he shows himself to be powerful and strong over every minute detail. Brothers and sisters, know that our Lord is working. If he could strike the dust and the gnats and fleas are at his beckoning call, could it be that every minute detail of your life is so that the display of God and his power and his uniqueness, that he is the one true God, is being accomplished in your life? If only you'd be willing to see it. I think that's underscored very clearly in this third plague. But finally, I want you to notice what's probably most shocking to me as I read it in verse 18. And it is this. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. See, up to this point, they were able to reproduce the water turning to blood from the Nile. They were able to reproduce the frogs. They were able to make things worse. They weren't able to make things better for the Egyptians. But from this point forward, we find that the magicians were unable to do what the Lord was doing in his supernatural power. We find that they were not able to mimic it. I I actually wrote down they were not able to duplicate it, but they were never able to duplicate it. They were only able to mimic it. (laughs) They were only, only able to make it look like what God was doing. But all along, I saw they were doing is mimicking it. They were not duplicating this process. 
but it says here that they were not able to do, produce the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. In other words, there was no let up. There's no ability for there to be relief from this judgment that God had poured out. It was so near. It was so imminent. It was so pressing. So the magician said, notice this affirmation of God's presence in verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. You know, they didn't say, I think this might be God working now. It's interesting they use this particular phrase. It's a phrase of closeness, isn't it? It's a phrase of intimacy. It's not a a phrase of a God who is out there really far away and he's making things happen here on earth. No, even the magicians knew this isn't just God kind of out there mysteriously working. This is the very finger of God touching the very soul of our people. Their affirmation is so true. God is not just out there kind of watching everything at a distance, trying to managing things. No, our God is intimate. He's called our God in heaven, but he's also called our Father. It says the very finger of God is at work here. What an affirmation of the nearness and the closeness of God's judgment. As the, even the pagan magicians, the priests of the Pharaoh, knew. And they're letting the Pharaoh know this. So we think, well, obviously Pharaoh has been hardening his heart at this point because the magicians have been doing what the, Lord has, what the Lord was also doing. And so Pharaoh thought, well, if my magicians can do it, then it can't be that big of a deal, so I'm going to harden my heart, and I'm not going to listen to what the Lord is doing. But it says here that magicians come to him and not only say, we can't do this, but this is the very finger of God. And it says in verse 19, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. As the Lord said. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10 as we close. Hebrews chapter 10, which is our New Testament scripture reading this morning. Hebrews 10. It says in he- <clears throat> excuse me, it says in Hebrews 10, "For we know him who said, "Vengeance is mine, I will repay." This is verse 30 of chapter 10. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is, the, it is a fearful thing, brothers and sisters, to fall into the hands of a living God. Are you aware of the fact that the judgment of God is imminent? It is not far off and out there and really, really away. It's not in the distant future. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The judgment of God is not going to be broad sweeping. It's not going to happen over in California or down in Orlando. The judgment of God is going to come into our very homes to the very place where we rest our head, to our very souls. God's going to expose us and all of our secret sins. He's going to reveal our rebellion against Him. And we live day in and day out as if that will never happen. 
God is a God who is near. He's a God who is very present. We sometimes think very lightly of that. We sometimes assume that God is this kind of casual buddy that we can come up alongside and enjoy and just kind of enjoy life with. And No, God, it says according to our passage, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If judgment is that imminent and that sure, and it is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of fall into the hands of this living God, then notice with me in, in Hebrews 10, verse 19 for a moment. The question is this. Are you going to reject this imminent judgment and in so doing think you can handle it by your efforts, your abilities, your accomplishing things? Are you good enough, you think, to stand before God? It says in Hebrews 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? This is the only way we will enter into the holy place of God. And it is in verse 19, We have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. That's the only way we're going to go into the holy places of God. It's not by our bidding. It's not by our ability. It's not that we're going to have more good than bad. It's that we have trusted in and repented from our sins and our um, assumed things that we trust in, and we placed our trust and hope in the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, by this new and living way that is open for us through the curtain. This curtain is what divided God's people from his holy place there in the tabernacle and in the temple. That is, this one who's opened this curtain for us that we may have access to this holy place and with God himself. That is, through his flesh, the flesh of Jesus Christ. If this is true that this judgment is this imminent, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Isn't it absolutely, or shouldn't we be desperate for a Moses? Because I can't go to God. You can't go straight to God. You you can't come to Him in prayer. You have no access to this holy, righteous, reverence, worthy, awesome God of heaven and earth that has all things under his control. You have no access to him on your own. We need an intercessor, brothers and sisters. We need someone who can be like Moses, who will go to our God and God will listen. Who's not one whom God will ignore or turn his back on. We need a priest. We need an intercessor. We need one who can go before the very throne of God and intercede for us, and our Lord will listen to him. That's why it says in verse 21 of chapter 10, Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Who's that great priest? That one who's greater than Moses. That one who's greater than Melchizedek, as it says earlier in the book of Hebrews. We have one that will go before us and intercede for us. And God will listen to him. This one, Jesus Christ, 
So, brothers and sisters, because of repenting of our sin, our rebellion, our our assuming that we can approach God on our own abilities and with our own ingenuity and with our own patterns of things, instead of doing that, rejecting all that and coming to Christ who is our high priest, who can enter into the very holy of holies, we come to him with supplication. And it says in verse 22, when we do that, verse 22, chapter 10 of Hebrews, we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast, brothers and sisters, this confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Do you believe That if you come before Christ and you say because of your blood and your death, because of what you did on the cross, I can be saved. Do you believe that? The question isn't whether you believed enough or not. The question is if you understand that Christ is faithful. That God is faithful, he says in his word, to listen to the promises that he's made. If one trusts in Christ, he can enter into, he can draw near, he can come into the presence of God himself. So let us hold fast our confession. Verse 24, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. That's why we meet together. That's why we're here this morning. So we can turn each other again toward Christ and say, we've been trusting in all these foolish things, but we need to trust in Christ. That's why we gather. We shouldn't neglect this gathering together, as is the habit of some. Verse 25, But encouraging one another and all the more As you see the day, do you see that? The day of judgment. The sure, definite, it will happen without a doubt, day of judgment. And what is that day of judgment doing, according to our passage here? It's drawing near. It's drawing near. Are you going to? Throw yourself upon Jesus Christ. Or are you going to keep making excuses and hardening your heart and seeking your own way? 